Welcome to All Things Considered. This is Robert Siegel. You know, the word avuncular stems from the Latin root avunc, meaning uncle-like. Pretty good? Pretty good. You put a southern accent on a Stuyvesant Town guy, I think, a little bit. Really? You think? This is Robert Siegel. That's southern? It's just a touch of it to me. But it's, well, let it's me a, try it again. It's one of the best ones I've yes. heard. Oh, okay. Well, at least that I heard. It. Okay. Today we have uh, two friends of mine, uh, Norm Ornstein and E.J. Dion. Norm Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a right-wing think tank in Washington, D.C. But Norm has always been sort of a, I'd call you a moderate progressive, I guess. That's fair. Yeah, and like some Republicans used to be, which AEI mainly were conservatives and Republicans, uh, he believes that the Republican Party a long time ago just went off. The, in fact, you've written books about how off yes. the path they've gone. Yeah. E.J. Dion uh, is also a scholar but this at the Brookings Institute or in, institution? institution. Okay, and and right next door to Norm, yep. and that's where uh, uh, Richard Nixon had. Uh, he tried to bomb us. Was it bomb? I thought it was break into. Was it break in? I thought, or, or was the no. bomb in service of breaking it into? Was, yes. Okay. It was break it's, in first. You're both bomb right. Second. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, you're author too of books, right? You write books, including one with Norm. Yes. Including and this uh, latest one uh, with Norm. Uh, One Tom Nation Man. After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And some people, when this came out, some not yet deported have since been deported. A sizable number. So they, uh, they can yes. get that at a library Others in Mexico have been imprisoned in, waiting deportation. EJ and, and, and Norm are old friends. Of, of mine and of each other, of course. But EJ and I uh, went to uh, college together, and he, uh, you were a social studies major, right? Correct. Yeah, and that was like the hardest major. EJ was was a friend in uh, in college and was very studious and has turned out to be a fine uh, journalist. I got to be on the committee that planned our graduation. And there was a humor speaker at every graduation. The, and I what is said, that called, the class day speech or, or something? something. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember what it was called, but I said, there is only one person in our whole class who should give this speech, and his name is Al Franken. And so I got it through by acclamation, and there he was, and he was funny. And so I take complete credit for his entire Saturday Night Live career. And my Senate career. Yes, <laughs> yes. What all flowed from that speech. Uh, uh, yeah. 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 And and Norm, we met at the '88 uh, Democratic, Democratic Convention, Convention in, Atlanta. in Atlanta, and we discovered that we grew up in the same suburb of yep. Minneapolis, St. Louis Park, uh, nicknamed St. Jewish Park yes. by by also by Jews. So it's not not any right. Semitic thing. Oh, it can be. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and undoubtedly will be. Yeah, and and we actually live very close. But you like went to. The University of Minnesota when you were how old? I was, uh, well, I was 14 when I started college, 15 as a sophomore at the University of Minnesota. Okay. I started in Winnipeg and then moved down. Oh, I see. So that's probably why I didn't know you because yeah. I was in uh, ninth grade. Well, you were. <laughs> <laughs> 
You were younger, but... Um, or 10th grade, I guess. But I also mm-hmm. uh, saw you and Tom Davis mm-hmm. at Dudley Riggs in Minnesota, so I knew about you even before the uh, famous Class Day speech that launched your uh, career in a bigger way. Yeah, well, Tom and I started in high school. Yeah. So we met in 88. We really uh, liked each other. When I did Indecision 92, which was uh, on Comedy Central, and we covered the conventions, we did hours, like four hours a night. We did much more coverage than the networks at the time. Norm came on and was our resident pollster, did other bits too, and he was brilliant. And we got a letter between the Democratic and the Republican conventions from a woman that said, the man who played Norm Ornstein was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And you were, you were. And wasn't he a cabinet member in one of your books? I was chief of staff. I was was campaign manager and chief of staff in Why Not Me? Uh, And, of course, in that book, Al played a bombastic, uh, immoral populist running on a a ticket of the outrageously high ATM fees. Uh, Uh, My platform was getting rid of ATM fees. Yeah. Swamped Al Gore in the primaries. (laughs) Chose Joe Lieberman as as his running mate long before Al Gore. As a balance ticket because a reformed Jew and an Orthodox Jew. And then, uh, uh, despite all of my memos as campaign manager saying that's illegal, you can't do that, (laughs) won. And uh, we broke ground. I became the chief of staff with the first all-Jewish cabinet. And I'm proud to say my contribution was Ralph Lauren as Secretary of the Interior. And then, of course, he uh, got impeached and removed from office. And I, as his chief of staff, went to jail. Maybe the least popular book I wrote. But uh, actually... (laughs) A brilliant and funny and incredibly prescient book. You like all your children, but I, that was one of my favorite. What I want to do today is talk to you guys about what the 2020 election should be about. In terms of in 2016, it was all Hillary's emails and the, the Trump circus. I mean, you could not turn to any... Certainly, the cable news without seeing Trump uh, or hearing about the emails, but also the New York Times, the Washington Post. I think the Washington Post, which you were for, they did Fahrenheit. David Fahrenheit did this full surprise winning thing on uh, the Trump charities. The Trump charities. So-called. That was very, very, yes, the foundation. It was so ironic that. Of the two foundations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The one that's had to shut down is the Trump Foundation. Yeah, but but the one that was being used as a political weapon was one that saved millions of lives or something like that? Or Yes, yeah. millions of lives. Millions definitely. of lives. Yeah, the, their the, health the initiatives around the world yeah. have uh, been astonishing. So what I want to talk to you about is what, what should uh, this campaign be about? And what are the stakes, in other words, of this election? That's what I'm asking. I happened to talk yesterday to one of the most interesting candidates for president, who is also the one with the least chance of winning at the moment, which is Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend. He has this very interesting sort of template where he wants to run on freedom, democracy, and security. Uh, I've thought about it as freedom, democracy, and fairness. And I think sort of those three baskets are pretty good. And when you think about freedom, 
the definition of freedom in our politics has almost always been about big government, be free from big government, be free from regulation. Uh, he is talking about, and I think the country needs to talk about, other forms of freedom, like the freedom you get when you have health insurance and you don't have to worry about going bankrupt, the freedom uh, that you if have. anyone gets sick in this country, because before the Affordable Care Act, if you got really sick, you that was it. You're yeah. out of money. Right, cancer, and very quickly. And there are a whole series of freedoms that are economic freedoms that I think we want to talk into that, uh, t- uh, sort of tie into that word. And so I like his idea of wrapping that into the word freedom because it is a good definition of freedom. Second, I would add to that that, and Norm and I have talked about this a lot, we talk about it in the book, the uneven nature of prosperity in America is a huge problem. Because of the last campaign, we have talked a lot more about what is happening in parts of the Midwest, but it's really happening in almost every state in the Union. If you contrast upstate New York with Greater New York City or, or Chicago versus so downstate uh, Illinois, the inequality in wealth. And but the, it's not just the. the it, gap. We've talked a lot about the gap. We haven't talked gap. about the regional gap. Nor do we talk about how that's linked to what's happening in inner cities. Because even in the rich places, you've got vast inequalities. Like Boston and New York have the highest some of the highest inequalities in the country. So, so we might. So what might be an issue would be uh, the tax cut. That we had. That could be an issue. Well, I'm sure that'll be an issue. I mean, don't you think? Because wasn't the tax cut not really helpful? Oh, it was for mom and people? pop, right? Yeah, mom yeah. and pop who happened to own very, very large yeah, yeah. corporations. If, if pop is Wilbur Ross, <laughs> yeah. uh, just to hit on a couple of things that EJ had said on uh, freedom, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave a famous speech, the Four Freedoms speech. One of those freedoms was freedom from want. And the freedom from want hits at a whole lot of areas. And this is a core for Democrats going back for many, many decades and one that they ought to play on. They ought to, as E.J. said, turn freedom into something that is a positive and what government does to help provide those things. Inevitably, some of this is just going to be a referendum on whether people like what the last four years have been like. And that includes the coarseness uh, of the presidency. It includes the kleptocracy, the corruption throughout the inept government. I think that should be a big issue, which is how badly this government is run and how this president doesn't seem to have any interest in running this this And the shutdown, by the way, I think has really blown up in his face in a serious way and underscored that for a lot of people in the country, including, it looks like, quite a lot of Republicans. Some of his core, for the first time, is starting to abandon him. Whether they'll stay with that, I'm not sure. But when you look back at the child separation policy, the fact that they said they had no policy and they did, but that they can't even keep track of the kids. When you look at the response to Puerto uh, Rico. Well, that uh, is a combination of incompetence and cruelty. Almost everything is. You look at the, (laughs) you look at, in, in this administration, you look at Puerto Rico. And the horrible response there, and you could say it's incompetence, but then we learn that Donald Trump said, I don't want a dollar going to the Puerto Ricans. I want it to go to Florida and Mississippi because the Puerto Ricans didn't vote for me. Incompetence and cruelty. Those will be issues. They also, you know, they stopped publishing data on how long the electricity and the water has been down. As a broader set of issues, going back to the definition of Republicans now, 
data and facts are their enemies because they show things that don't fit the theology or don't fit the corrupt behavior that they've done. But I also think, getting back again to what EJ had said, uh, one of the tasks for Democrats in the House in this two years is to try and come up with a coherent and powerful framework for what you would do if you were controlling the reins of power in the areas that people care about. And they care about health care. They care about having a safety net. They care about fairness. They care about making sure that the American dream and its contract, that if you work and you show up and you do what you're supposed to, you can have a roof over your heads and food on the table and the ability to educate your kids. So don't, don't you think All of something... those things have to be dealt with and find at least some consensus and coherence, which is not going to be easy. Uh, by the way, I, you know, we can go through. I think this primary is going to be interesting if yeah. Democrats don't completely tear each other apart because everybody is putting something on the table. One of the themes which I heard him do during his campaign for reelection this fall Sherrod Brown's The Dignity of Work. And I think that focus is a very powerful focus. It's a unifying focus, we all agree, with work. But it's actually a sharp critique of what's wrong that I think many different kinds of Americans can relate to. Let me ask you, I remember I, I was on the HELP Committee and uh, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions. And uh, we'd have someone like from Price Waterhouse as a witness on just on, you know, child care. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, Pricewaterhouse is in, you know, 93 countries around the world, and 92 of them <laughs> have childcare. And so we just have to deal with this one country that doesn't have it. And it's a real pain for us and for our employees that the, it costs a tremendous amount and it, it makes it much, much harder for our employees to get to work on time always and to do the job they need to do. You know, I, I stayed up to the crazy wee hours of the morning last night watching for the umpteenth time the movie Dave, which stars Kevin Klein and Frank Langella and Sigourney Weaver, and it's about a really bad, evil president and uh, his uh, replacement when he has a uh, stroke. And one of the things that struck me, it kind of makes you feel a little bit better about how politics can be, Kevin Klein, who plays the acting president in this case, gives this stirring speech because he runs a temp agency about just that, the dignity of work and how this isn't about just making a living. You see people's eyes light up when they get a job. It becomes an intrinsic part of their character. And Al, you and I talked about this before when you had Republicans basically deriding people who had been thrown out of work when unemployment was high. You know, they're sitting back, they got their welfare, they're watching TV and and drinking beer about how the people that you encountered when you were out on the campaign trail who did not have their jobs were shattered as people because it was it's such an important part of one's identity. And I, I think picking up on that theme will people, resonate so it, broadly it, across your, all these categories. And we got to shout out one of your predecessors, uh, Walter Mondale. We came very, very close in the Nixon years to having some kind of system of child care, and Nixon vetoed the bill, and it was a great loss to the country. This is why people are angry. One of the reasons people are angry is that their lives have become unmanageable. I think the problem Democrats have and progressives have is that they often 
have a list of actually quite decent programs, and they haven't succeeded all the time. Obama did it sometime. Bill Clinton did it sometime. Hillary had a actually a pretty good list of policies that would have improved people's Her white lives. papers were so much better than his white papers. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yet they have not conveyed that this is part of a vision of what it means to be an American and what rights you have as an American and how uh, life can be made better. And that's why I've, um, at Norm's reference to the Four Freedoms speech, that was a great template that people got. Norman Rockwell did all these great paintings yeah. built around the Four Freedoms. And I, I think that progressives need to find that approach. But, but people... they have Frank Luntz doing slogans. <laughs> So I mean, but I don't think this is about slogans. I think it's about a story that people yeah. get. Well, I always say you're saying why can't we message what we're saying as well as they can? And I've always said that our bumper stickers always end with "continued on next bumper sticker." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, see footnote one thirty four. I mean, I would be in so many caucus meetings of of, of Democratic senators, and we would try to get a message you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would try to talk about a message and it would devolve into policy and we'd never be able to do it and then chuck schumer would pick you know something like the what, what was this new one the new it wasn't the new deal the a better deal oh that's it that's it i mean <laughs> how could we have forgotten um, I, I remember sitting at a lunch and uh we had one of the Democratic pollsters there, and the all the elements of this were testing great. Higher minimum wage, all-day kindergarten, all, all that stuff. Uh, I raised my hand. I said, okay, but how is a better deal testing? And he said, well, we didn't test that. And then Chuck says, you know, all this other stuff is testing so well. The love the uh, the better deal. <laughs> I always worry when progressives talk about messaging because it's not just messaging. It's capturing people's imagination. If you look at successful campaigns in the past, I mean, take Obama's change we can believe in. Now, that's a pretty vague slogan. And yet I always thought that it had two words in it that people related to. Obviously, change was one. But I always thought believe was actually maybe the most important word yeah. because it went right to the heart of the fact that people didn't really trust anymore in the system, in each other. And so I, I, it's it's about capturing people's imagination in some way. I covered this year uh, Ayanna Presley, who beat a very progressive Democrat, Mike Capuano, and her slogan was change can't wait. Now, change can't wait can mean a lot of things yes. to a lot of people. And yet it struck me that it combined uh, change we can believe in with King's The Fierce Urgency of Now. In other words, it's a slogan that ca a slogan captures a moment and it ends up meaning more than the few words. Change can't wait is three words. I'm slightly <laughs> partial to make America America again, <laughs> that basically what Trump has done is to take us away not from the perfection. There was no perfection, but. The basic ideals of the system, whether it is how government operates, whether it is the truth matters, that you take facts, that you care about inequality, that you uh, don't do a whole set of policies that enrich yourself, that you strive for better humanity. But something might work better. But I also, you know, when the Affordable Care Act came up, it frustrated me deeply 
that the the discussion took, it seemed to me, a very wrong turn, that it should have been saying to people, have you ever lost your job, lost your health insurance, had to go on COBRA, and just at a point when you had no income, all of a sudden you had to pay a fortune for insurance that you couldn't afford? Have you ever been stuck in a job that you felt you just couldn't leave because leaving would mean you'd lose your health insurance? Have you ever hit up against an annual limit or a lifetime limit uh, when all of a sudden you had a serious disease? The things that the Affordable Care Act did that resonated with people's lives ended up getting lost in the question of how what exchanges and how they're going to work and lots of lies, but territory that Republicans could distort and turn to their own advantage instead of the things that this was going to do to change people's lives, especially as we move towards an economy where people aren't going to have jobs where employers provide their insurance and they may be moving every four or five years. And that's the, the core strength of this framework. And we got away well, from it. And candidates have to get back to thinking about what their policies that they're going to pursue will mean for people's lives. Does this mean that within the Democratic Party, we're going to have an argument about single payer versus a uh, uh, transition to, to or some kind of universal or some kind of public option. Do you see that as one of the disputes that we'll have in this primary season? I think there's a real danger of that happening. And I actually think that if instead the focus is we know what our goal was to start with. It was to make sure that everybody was covered and nobody would go bankrupt from uh, a problem with uh, the health care system and health insurance. And all of us agree on that goal. And we're going to make sure, whether it's done step by step or it's in one big move, that we're going to accomplish that goal. And they don't want to accomplish that goal. No, they, I, they don't want uh, rich people to have to pay for poor people's care. Yeah. I mean, and you saw that in Obamacare because early on, there was such a big public fight over should it include a public option or not. And that became a litmus test. I was for the public option. I think every, for a lot of almost reasons. Almost every uh, Democratic senator was Joe Lieberman. Right. Well, he yeah. killed it single-handedly. Yep. And that, but putting that aside, that particular thing dominated the argument. And I agree with Norm that I think it's very important that the goal is to get every single American decent health insurance. And I mean genuinely decent health insurance. And that there are legitimate arguments that people can have to get there. I think the second level of the argument is we are never going to get to a single-payer system in one step without having a kind of disruption that voters clearly don't want. And so even if you believe passionately that single-payer is the goal, and I can see why people want to go there, the steps you take to get there will make the system better. Let's take the steps we can take. Well, you, you would ask someone, do you like your employers, you know, what you get from your employer? And most people will say yes. If you can choose to get a go right, into right. Medicare, I mean, if you can buy into Medicare or Medicaid and you choose to do that, that's that's Well, see, that's exactly how I would define yeah. for now Medicare for All, which is all people should have the opportunity to get into it if they want. If you make it that definition, we can all be for Medicare right. for All. Yeah, and yeah. actually what the, the, we have... You, you've solved the problem. <laughs> well, that I... I'm not kidding bet, you. You've no. actually... We won the election. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <What>? Woo, EJ! <laughs> all right. Medicare for All means 
anyone who wants it can get it. No, but if a single-payer system is what people want, then the Medicare option will grow and grow and grow, and we'll get there anyway. Yeah. There have been polls now that show that when you ask, do you approve of Medicare for all, there are very, very robust numbers in support. When you ask people, um, what if it means that there won't be private insurance uh, through employers, the numbers drop to like the 30s. So uh, the distinction that EJ has just made is borne out not just by the three of us sitting around saying it's great. That's what surveys show. Every developed country in the world has a a single payer. That's what I heard last. It's not (laughs) true. That's not true. Yeah. (laughs) But other than that. But but the birdie imitation was excellent. Yes. Uh, But it's it's kind of true. There's universal every everywhere right and in every other country but some have uh, some that you get through your lots employer. of mixed systems yeah. and some of the best in Europe are in fact mixed systems uh, yeah. Switzerland the Dutch uh, have a mixed system the French so it's a very uh, varied kind of process you can to even pl- get private insurance in in Great Britain yes to plug a colleague's book from many years ago Tom Reed T.R. Reed wrote a wonderful book where he did a tour of the world and what he said is everybody got to universal coverage but they did it through different uh, roads and we can learn from all of them he also said that in the United States we don't have a health care system in my first debate I was debating with Norm Coleman about health care and he said we have the best health care system in the world because we have the Mayo Clinic and I said you know, the Mayo Clinic is not a healthcare system. It's it's a clinic, and it's as good as any healthcare in the world. But it's not a healthcare system. And we have, quoting Reed, a lot of different systems. Right. And if you're in Medicare, you're in the Canadian system. And if you're in uh, the military or the VA, you're in the British system. And if you get it from your employer, you're in the German system. And if you don't have insurance, you're in the Cambodian system. And the idea of ACA was to get people from the Cambodian system into one of the other systems. 20 million people went from the Canadian system into one of the other systems. And now... The Cambodian system, not the Canadian system. Did I say the Canadian? Yes. I meant Cambodian. We can add a Cambodian yes, in. Would, Let me yeah. say Cambodian several times. Cambodian. 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 Okay, we'll make that edit. Anyway, so the th- thing is that since Trump has come in, We've seen the the number of uninsured go up. And uh, getting back to another point that EJ made, it's not just getting insurance. It's getting good insurance that's really protective insurance. To me, one of the most insidious things that we've seen, and I wouldn't attribute it to Trump because he doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. This is what Paul yeah, Ryan— Yeah, you can't blame him for no, not right. knowing anything. <laughs> no, this is, but this is the system that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and their allies have devised— And it's the idea of putting these super cheap plans out there and saying, see, we're going to insure people. Yeah, the short-term plans, which are 364 days and that you can renew three times, which they used to be like three months. And there are short-term plans, but these plans don't have to comply with any of the essential health services. Any of the essential health services. And also they give the insurers the ability to not to directly deny people with pre-existing conditions, but to make them pay fortunes for them. And they don't cover anything. And they put in annual and lifetime limits that are very severe. And they have huge deductibles. So you're giving people nothing. You're giving them something that is a promise. And 
they will get nothing but disappointment out of it. It's a matter of insuring everybody, but giving them a genuine set of protections against catastrophe. And could I go back to something we talked about at the beginning? This is where regulation can actually contribute to freedom. Amen. Uh, regulation means you can go in a supermarket, pick a bunch of different, uh, for, sorry to vegans and vegetarians out there, pick from all of this meat or fish and say this is going to be safe. You don't have to worry if it's not. And in this case, it means the freedom from worry that this insurance policy you have won't really cover anything you need when you get sick. And again, I think there's a big kind of, especially after the radical deregulation Trump has been doing, which is a broad conservative goal, not just Trump's, people have to go back and start defending core ideas uh, that progressives have always been for. We can breathe the air because of regulation, that horrible, horrible word in their eyes. Well, um, you know, I think one of the issues will be who he's put in charge of things like the Environmental Protection Agency and Interior and all those areas where we have seen these uh, regulations not enforced and we're seeing our air get dirtier and our water get dirtier and it's affecting the health of American of the American people. So uh, do you think uh, the way our election system works will be an issue or do you think people care about that but not intensely or not enough? I think some uh, voters are, care about it when their own vote is under threat. I thought it was fascinating that Stacey Abrams down in Georgia, who very nearly won that election and might have won without some of the voting rules, uh, used her attack on the unfairness of a system run by the secretary of state who was her opponent to generate voter turnout. You know, and so Stacey Abrams went to the electorate and said, your vote is under threat and turnout went up because people who could exercise their vote made sure they did. Was that ethical of her? Well, sure it was, <laughs> because it was true. What she, she was saying was 100% true. Well, let me answer your question in a slightly different way. So the Democrats win the House of Representatives and create H.R. 1, which is a signal of where they see priorities and where they see concern from voters. And it is a broad democracy reform and ethics reform package. In other words... Democrats in Congress, and I agree with them, believe that the fundamental unease, that the system is broken, that voters are making choices, but those choices aren't translating into who wins elections, much less into the priorities that they care about. That requires fundamental reform, reform of the Electoral College, reform of the redistricting process, reform of the campaign finance system making ethics better. All of those things are kind of pulled together into this yeah. one bill. And I think that's going to be a huge issue that candidates are going to focus on uh, during this primary and uh, presidential selection. Process. And restoring the Voting Rights Act that the Roberts Court Amen. gutted. Yes. Thank God liberals are con in control of the court. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we can rely on Merrick Garland to provide the fifth vote. Oops. Oh, uh. uh. <laughs> Anyway, uh, no, I mean, that. Is, how about that as an issue? Republicans have cared more about the Supreme Court than Democrats have. And the reason is, is that we kind of got stuff we liked. Roe v. Wade was ne not overturned. Kennedy was a good vote on that. Yep. 
ACA, the ACA actually passed, you know, got through 5-4. Marriage. Although with Medicaid gutted, by the way, but. Yes, with, and, and now, of course, states like Idaho and Kansas are voting to. To come back in, and Maine came in also with a new governor. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, everyone realizes if Idaho is voting for it, you know the conservatives are going like, hmm, I think it it helps everybody to expand Medicaid. But I think that should be an enormous issue. You can't let this guy appoint number six and number seven, you know, especially number six, we know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whereas it played to... He was very smart to say he's going to let the Federalist Society pick a Supreme Court. So because he was, you know, he was Donald Trump, who I think had been pro-choice, right, and had in in the past. Yeah. So he just he just signaled, mm, I'm passing that off. There to- was a uh, an infamous meeting early in the campaign at Jones Day, a law firm here in Washington, not far from the Capitol, where Donald Trump met with Leonard Leo. Uh, the head of the Federalist Society, and Don McGahn, who was at Jones Day, had been the chairman of the Federal Election Commission and gutted every regulation, and then became Trump's counsel. Yep. Uh, Very familiar with him, dealt with him. Yep. At which, basically, Trump agreed that if they gave him a list of people acceptable to them for the Supreme Court, he would choose from that list. And it's not that Trump knew any of those names, had even thought for a nanosecond about any of this stuff. But what he realized, maybe because of McGahn's influence or maybe in his gut, was that all of these conservative groups and the evangelical Protestants who might rebel against his past behavior, all of those partisans who saw that he had been an independent and a Democrat and had been a New York Republican, if that, that if he agreed that he would stack the Supreme Court and the other courts with their nominees, didn't matter what he did. Yep. Access Hollywood tape or any of the rest of it. And that was pivotal in him getting that undying I, I've support. Al- I've always had conjecture of, like, what would it take in evangelical? What would Donald Trump have had to have done that we discover for an evangelical to go, now I can't, you know, whether he's paid for an abortion or something, no, they'll be fine. That's just one. He's saving so, thousands. If, if the person he shot in broad daylight on <laughs> Fifth Avenue was Jerry Falwell Jr., that might do it. No, mm. but just by the way, let's not talk about all evangelicals, since a lot of African Americans are evangelicals, yes. and there is a minority of evangelicals that has you know, Jim Wallace for one, Mike Gerson, yeah. who who's way more conservative than any of us is on a bunch of issues, has really spoken out against Trump. I do want to say on this court thing, it took liberals way too long to realize that the danger of judicial activism now comes from the right. Because liberals made a lot of gains through the court under Earl Warren, starting with Brown v. Board to a one person, one vote, a whole series of decisions. My, my first... And you, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, early on, by the way, Joe Biden really got this. So there were some senators who were focusing on this. This but is it's my, taken first, way too my long. first uh, words in the Judiciary Committee. The fifth day I was there, so yeah. my or was the hearing had started. And my first thing was the Roberts Court has been an activist court. 
and one thing after another, and I mean overturning Shelby or the Voter yeah, Rights Act. Shelby County. That, that was a hundred votes, I think, in the Senate. Yes, it was. Yeah, that that had passed. So I mean, yeah. that's and, and as overwhelmingly in the House. Be. Yeah, and McCain-Feingold. I mean, that well. that it was a classic where. On the one end, you strengthen the power of the most privileged people in the country. And on the other end, you undercut the power of the most discriminated against people in the country. And these were two incredibly activist decisions. And I I would say about the Citizens United decision, John Roberts had testified in his confirmation hearing that he was going to be the opposite of an activist judge. It was going to be an umpire calling balls and strikes. He said, I'm going to strive for decisions that won't be five to four, but that will be eight to one or nine to nothing. And that's by focusing on the narrowest element uh, in the decisions we make. So one of the first things that comes up is a narrow as applied case involving this group Citizens United doing a documentary about Hillary that was blatantly political, but they wanted to advertise to show it. And it was an easy way to decide it in a narrow sense. He pulled it back and said, we're going to uh, hear this on grounds that had never been brought for the court, yeah, was... had never been argued, that blew up the entire campaign finance regulatory system. You can't get more activist than that. When you call the balls and strikes, what an umpire does, and anybody who watches baseball knows that every umpire has his own strike zone. And uh, he would change the strike zone depending on who was up. Yep. If uh, if uh, corporations were up, it'd be a little teeny strike zone, <laughs> right at that where their wheelhouse is, you know, beautiful. Oh yes, that's the strike zone. And then if labor gets up, the strike zone included the guy's head. Yes. <laughs> and then Kavanaugh keeps saying, "I'm going to call balls and strikes in his thing." And I think it's been discredited. I mean, widely yeah. discredited. Yes. <laughs> and, and then he keeps saying, and then he basically says, what well, goes around comes around. Yeah. And so he says that I'm not going to do that. Okay, let's uh, talk about one last thing, I think, which is I, I complain that the last presidential election was all the Trump circus or, or Hillary's emails. But the Trump circus in and of itself is an issue, right? I mean, the, the this man's character, uh, this man's uh, lying, this man's uh, contempt for the truth, for basic American institutions, he's an issue. I mean, that's going to be a big issue. It's so, just going to be him, right? So in our book, One Nation After Trump, we do a fair amount on the stuff we began to talk about, a positive agenda going forward, a progressive agenda. But we also have a whole lot on the nature of this Trump presidency. And I would say even beyond Trump and the White House, the entire executive branch, but also the Republican rule in Congress, those ought to be big issues. You know, whenever I talk, I use these three words, autocracy, kleptocracy, and cacistocracy. And they all need to be a part of this. It's not just his love for Isn't it dictators. It's cacistocracy. It's caca? Cacus. Cacus. But it comes from caca. I mean, it, literally the root of the term 
Just ask any kid what caca means, and it's governed by the least and most. I have a five and a half year old grandson, and we will ask. He'd Joe, be laughing. Yes, if I said, <laughs> ask him what that yes. was. Yes, but you're friends with Orban, with uh, the uh, crown prince in Saudi Arabia, with Erdogan, with all of the dictators, uh, with Duterte. When you use the term fake news, they use it to really violently uh, oppress the press. But you also have taken your own moves towards autocracy, towards eliminating some of the basic checks and balances. You have a president and a family that have basically enriched themselves dramatically through the government and make policy decisions, including letting MBS, the Saudi prince, off the hook for a brutal murder of a Washington Post journalist because you got all these properties in Saudi Arabia. You have a cabinet filled with utterly corrupt people. Uh, who have done insider trading or use their service to enrich themselves or to live the high life. Then you've got inept and terrible governance. And all of those things should be on the table. And the fact that the Republicans in Congress did zero to investigate, to oversee, basically the Senate let every one of these corrupt people, including some like Scott Pruitt, who lied openly during their confirmation hearings, and and was proved to, be to confirmed, have lied. Proved to have lied two days after uh, McConnell confirmed. jammed through the, the confirmation. All of that should be grounds not just for electing a different president, but for making sure that Congress is there in a fashion that will do the job and not the people who've been running the, the Senate. I think all elections at some level or other are about two simple sentences. One is throw the bums out. And the other is Reagan's old line, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I think this next election will be about both of those sentences. In the first instance, uh, Norm uh, made the, had just offered an excellent list. And I think most Americans are very conscious of that. There's a reason why we went from Donald Trump losing the popular vote by 2.9 million to the Democrats winning the House by almost 10 million. That is a big shift among Americans. And by the way, it was the highest turnout midterm uh, since uh, 1914 when African-Americans couldn't vote, when women couldn't vote. And so we have a much bigger electorate and we still had this enormous turnout. Man, Are you wait, better since when? 1914. 1914. Midterm. Yeah, this was the biggest turnout since As 1914 a of, of the, the eligible yeah. voters. OK, OK. Reagan's point, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Again, if you look at what happened in this election in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and in a bunch of other places, but those obviously are uh, central because of what happened in the last election, uh, you saw a lot of uh, working people, people I've sort of come to call Trump Democrats, people who defected to him. They came back because they're looking at their situation under Trump. They're looking at what he promised. And the changes he said he would bring about in their favor simply haven't happened. And so I think the election will be run on both of these tracks. And on the second track, are you better off now? That's where what Norm mentioned earlier, which is a clear program that's not complicated, that doesn't take 16 bumper stickers that cover your back window so you can't see, to give people a sense that, yeah, this stuff would materially make my life better. And I think those are the two frames of the election or the two tracks. You know, one of the reasons there was a, such an increase in turnout are the knuckleheads who assumed Hillary would win and didn't vote. 
Yeah, no, I think there was some of that. I have always They're thought knuckleheads. that yeah, a I bunch said of it. voters, <laughs> a bunch of voters who thought Hillary would win and therefore cast a protest vote for Trump. Uh, just to express their anger, or yeah. voted for one of the third-party candidates. I did that. I did that. I, I assumed assume. Hillary would win. And so, which one did you vote for? I voted for I voted for Trump because it was just a protest, and I voted in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and in <laughs> Wisconsin. And there's a lot of that's so much election fraud. Well, yeah. there's so much fraud, uh, and uh, that's why. I think that's why um, Trump won. But, you know, the number of votes cast for uh, Jill Stein, the number of people uh, who, prominent people who went on television and said uh, there's no difference between the two of them, um, or in some cases uh, she would be worse than Trump because she'll take us into war, who made a difference in getting people on the left to vote for Stein or not to vote. Okay, guys, thank you. We'll, you know, we'll cut out anything that we find to be... Offensive. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. We'll inaccurate. cut out inaccurate. <laughs> yes. And that'll mainly be me. <laughs> Keep so. the offensive, cut out the inaccurate. That's good. Thank you. Thank That's you. a slogan. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you're supposed to say thank you, too. Thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> okay. This has been you're an welcome. honor and a privilege. <clears throat> no, it was my, all mine. No, no, no. It was all ours. EJ? EJ? Oh, indeed. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I want to thank Norm Morenstein and EJ Dion. And by the way, that uh, beautiful music is from Leo Kotke. Leo Kotke. Keep listening. We're going to be doing uh, more of these and all things considered. Thank you.